0: Welcome to Fintech Insider, coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork London, Oldgate. My name's Jason Bates, and today I'm joined by my 11FS colleagues, David Breer. Hello. Pete Townsend. Hello. And Ross Gallagher. Hey. So to regular 11FS listeners, there are some, some new names
1: there. Do you want to do a quick intro and uh, and tell people what you've been up to this week? Yep. I'm Pete Townsend. I'm the Asset Management Lead here at 11FS. Had a fantastic week so far with very little sleep, which has been great. I hosted about 300 people yesterday at an innovation event in Dublin. Um, asset managers, fund administrators, people talking about millennials, about the future of work, about reg tech, fintech, everything. It was fantastic. Middle child syndrome really came out to play. Got all that attention for eight hours hosting it. <laughs> Loved it. <laughs> Sounds
2: good. Ross great yeah um really great week great to be back after the Christmas break um, so I sit on our research team lots of really great stuff going on um, some really interesting projects with some great clients and um, on our pulse platform
3: building out content yeah really great stuff busy 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 David I, like just mainly trying to fight off man flu this week really like that's been my major objective the amount of drugs that's like you know boots drugs not weird drugs like actual sort of things that are fine. just sitting on my desk trying to fight this stuff away but i like, thought 2017 was your like year of fighting off the the lurgy well uh, like I, and my priorities i think i put me like my health as the third thing so i I'm, might I'm have to like rejig these around a little bit just so i survive at least you know quarter one but um but yeah other than that it's been a busy on the the actual work side of things as well
0: I know what you mean. Enough about us, though. Let's introduce our guests. Our favourite Business Insider Analyst is back once again by popular demand, Sarah the
4: Good evening. Is it really popular demand? Have I got a fan club?
0: You have. You have. There's a whole, like, Twitter followings, uh, Reddit. Sub-Reddit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh
4: I'm not going down that. I'm not looking.
0: <laughs> and we've got, of course, Capco's principal lead and star of Halloween After Dark, but without the Spider-Man face paint this time, Charlie Wood.
5: Where, when is the face painting coming in? Do we get that again?
0: It's oh. not. No, it's not every episode, Charlie. Oh,
5: come on. I was promised.
0: <laughs> Maybe we'll do something for what's next.
4: Valentine's. Oh,
0: Valentine's. Cupid's. Hearts, Cupid's. Oh, Charlie. Charlie Wood in a nappy.
5: He's got a starry look in his eye, I'm not going to lie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so let's get started with this week's news. So first up, FCA bans BYOD, Bring Your Own Device. Who knows something about this?
4: I, I know that the FCA backtracked. So they, they published something which basically said uh, it was taking something from from the big EU uh, legislation, MIFID two, and that has to then be transposed into national law. And most of the time what happens is um, the national governments look at it and go, yeah, okay, that seems good, we'll have that, and copy and paste it into their own law books. Um, What seems to have happened here is that whereas the original piece of European legislation applied specifically to a certain type of um, financial institution, in this case investment, which has a specific definition, the FCA missed that word out and said, nobody who works at a financial institution can use their own device basically for Cop- copy and
3: paste error you know? well, so this is my
4: question so then they came back and and, and the, the register was the news organization that first published this um you know pointed it out and said you know have the fca gold plated it and that's what a national government does when they're like we don't really want people to do that so we're going to make it twice as hard or have they just missed a word out And the FCA came back and said individuals can bring their own devices, but firms should take all reasonable steps to prevent an employee or contractor from making, sending or receiving relevant telephone conversations and electronic communications on privately owned equipment, which the firm is unable to record a copy. So is that any clearer?
3: Well, so it is a little bit. So basically there's a bunch of software that you can put in place, the whole sort of MDM stuff that you can put in place, and, and actually all of the provisions around security mechanisms that you can actually put on personal devices to allow specific policies to be adhered to. Like Gartner Garner Analyst did a bunch of like stuff about this because the whole um, process of actually getting corporates to engage in new types of technology and securing them down. Like Even um, you know, BlackBerry has got their uh, enterprise service uh, setup in terms of everything that you can kind of put through it so you can do it but there's not actually not many um, not many services that really do it from a call recording service the only one that does is actually bez um, so it's a it's an interesting sort of dilemma they're either saying you can't do it or we're making it such a tiny little hole that you can only use these two vendors to make it happen
4: but the, the question there is surely So the 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 purpose of it is so that regulators can monitor what you are and aren't saying to clients, basically, and in particular to do with investment, it's got to do with what you may what messages you may or may not be sending over WhatsApp to people who may or may not be interested in what a stock price is doing. Is it really necessary for somebody who works in, I don't know, the underwriting department at Lloyds Bank to make sure that they have on their personal phone installed software that records any conversation? Because I guarantee you that they're only using it for Twitter Going out and calling their mum on the lunch break, like yeah. it, it, the question there is, should they be backtracking further here and saying, actually, we'll get back to the original point. Yeah. we meant investment specifically.
3: I, I think that's the thing. I don't. I don't think they've they've tried to make it better by making it slightly sort of more vague, haven't they? But um, it does bring up a more general point though about consumer technology and how
0: actually it's by and large, far superior to almost anything that a a major company will give you. So you get people turning up with their MacBooks in their bags, their iPhones in their pockets, being given old phones and old laptops in order to do their work on and it, it even then down to the kinds of cloud services we can use the number of times we've gone to talk to a client and we've said well you know does your company by any chance let you use google hangouts because we could google we could conference everyone in and you could see it. it's like uh no we can do teleconferences though it's like right because a teleconference is so much more secure than, well, but, uh, than Google
3: Hangouts. Perversely though, you generally find though that the more senior, the more, um, close to consumer kit actually people get. So if you walk around an executive floor, they've got iPads and, you know, pencils and iPhones and stuff. And then like further down the line, you've got some crappy Android device that nobody really wants, you know? Simon's not here, so I can get away with that <laughs> or shit. Or even, or even Blackberries. But <laughs> yeah. do
4: people, do people still have? two devices we having this conversation earlier because i i used to have two devices and i went no thank you i'm forever had the wrong one in my pocket or wherever i was a
3: a lot of my banking friends have done and actually but it's it's the thing it's um one of those instances where you don't realize how uh like empty something is until you you can't actually put the things on it that you want Mm -hmm. so like being able to have an iphone is great but actually the the experience is the the apps and if you can't put your apps on it you can't get onto the things you actually want to it's just like a shiny screen basically i'd I'd go
0: even further than that because actually given that we work for a number of clients i've had a situation where i've had three separate laptops with three separate uh, banks where you have to log on with three separate dongles to access their files on their servers and i can understand from a security you know an infosec perspective but it does get to the point where it's a case of well i've got this new design for an app how do i get the file to you And he's like, oh, well, we're going to have to talk to marketing because I think they have a portal globally. Draw it on a post-it, pass it around the team. And and (laughs) then suddenly you, like, that's
3: having an impact on the work that we're doing for this. But I, I, I think it's a, well, I think I threatened reasonably severe self-harm, didn't I, at the time, if I was being forced to use a Lenovo type thing. But um, but I think it does raise a serious point, though, because actually the banks are trying to compete with, you know, fintechs and tech firms. And if the tools of the trade are not being able to be used by the people who are working in those companies, it's a problem, right? It's like, um, you know, giving, um, you know picasso uh, a paintbrush but giving him like the three-year-old version of it because he can't hurt himself with it you know it's, it's not right not that i'm saying i'm picasso by the way what, I'm just what do you saying.
0: think charlie you you work for lots of uh, lots of big banks
5: yeah and i carry around several laptops all the time and yes i have two phones
4: <laughs> do you have backache is the
5: other question well so interestingly actually we have an option where you're allowed to um request a lighter laptop if oh. you do get backache yeah it's a serious issue is that um, is that after you've got a backache like
3: you have to approve backache first
5: it's, then the, then. it's the amount of drugs you're taking every okay. day In order to, yeah, you need to be able to prove. Um, Yeah, it it is a serious issue, but it's the classic question, isn't it? Security and accessibility push in opposite directions. Steve Yegg had a great blog on this from Google ages ago, and it, it really does impact productivity because accessibility is all about productivity and security is all about the opposite of that. And it becomes a massive pain. Um, and I, I don't, as an InfoSec person, I, I don't know the best way to be able to do it other than Google's Beyond Court model. Yeah. Uh,
0: and I, I guess, Pete, you've experienced this firsthand in sort of customer yes. Oh, yeah. Policies, oh,
1: oh, absolutely. You know, 10 years, 11 years, one bank. Um, BYOD wasn't even allowed when I left a year and a half ago. Um, and anything having to do with cloud any of these great new utilities that anybody should be able to use just were disallowed because it was cloud-based. That was insecure, not allowed. Um, I recently spoke with some individuals there, and nothing's changed in a year and a half. It's still the same thing. Um, a guy started and had to go out and use his own personal credit card um, after waiting nine months to get a dev server, right, and went out to AWS and got that in a half hour, um, but still couldn't get his dev server approved.
0: Hmm. So from uh, one technology uh, question to another. That was a really bad link. I just couldn't fi- think of any way of linking Kodak to that. There has to be some way but I just couldn't find it. So we've had a Kodak moment. Is that a Whoa. cliche? I think we probably have. Two big announcements from Kodak this week. Businesswire.com announced that, or, or reported that Kodak stock was up 44% after announcing it's launching a cryptocurrency called Kodak Coin. And I'd like to thank uh, maker Noanu uh, who submitted that story to FinTech in Inside and news.com so kodak coin what do we think oh my god it's, it, it's
5: the wrong name it, isn't it their,
1: it's their moment
5: it's got to be Coin. they had kodachrome back in
1: the old days it's got to be Coin, not kodak coin they've got to do something they've got to do something because there's there's not much left um and and so yeah absolutely um start moving to getting people's photos logged onto a distributed ledger Sounds great. Um I don't know where else they're gonna go because making cameras, making film, um there's nowhere to go with that. Uh,
3: this this feels like those last gurgly gasps of a company dying doesn't it like this is like last gasp attempt to kind of get some sort of relevancy this is the you know the meme of the the who's the guy out of the sopranos with the hat like he's like this is the hey kids moment isn't it you know i mean it's just not it's but the fact that the the market has reacted in such a um a positive way for this by the stock jumping so much i I like just terrifies me really it's only the uh first thing out of the crazy things that they did this week though right well i mean but but just staying on that for a moment,
0: I mean, you've got Seagate, the hard drive manufacturer, announcing that—well, there were apparently rumours that they'd found lots of Ripple or that they owned lots of XRP—and suddenly their their share price jumped. You've got the Long Island Ice Tea company becoming a blockchain company, and suddenly their share price jumped. Should is there not a fiduciary responsibility, as I think Ajit uh, mentioned, for every company to rename itself blockchain if it has this kind of effect on your share price?
4: I. May oh, uh, this is that's literally how I feel about this. Like I get them I think my I think my response to this was so it came up. Um, it was announced at CS. Both of these were announced at CS yesterday, or the day before, and it came up into my newsfeed at about six thirty. And I went, "That's a joke." Someone's <laughs> having me on, right? And then I I turned around to my tech editor. He went, "No, here's the here's the official press release." And my response was, "You've got to be kidding." Seriously, I mean the the second part is slightly more interesting to me than the first that this kodak mining rig thing they've set up so they've literally slapped their brand on on a machine that's made by somebody else and then they've set this kind of which i haven't dug into i'll be completely honest this contract that they will get half the profits i think it's half the profits of the bitcoin so not half the bitcoin but I I cannot get my head around the legality of that. I cannot get my head around why you would enter into that contract. I cannot understand that. It's just the like a, a
0: solar panel uh yeah. thing where essentially you get a uh, you know a solar panel to um uh, to re- reduced rate in terms of sharing the profits from it. But even so the economics of of a of a bitcoin mining rig compared to some of the big China mm-hmm. Yeah. mining farms how does that work
4: so, i mean i saw somebody on twitter say <laughs> that you you actually there is no there is no profit for them to take half off so it actually because the 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 average person who's going to be falling into this well, I was going to but, say falling into this trap, but, but they, doing they, this is not actually going to be...
3: Well, they they are saying, though, so over the two-year deal, you pay uh, 3400 upfront to rent the machines. Uh, customers will earn $375 a month, yeah. making 9000 over the two-year rental period.
4: How do you earn a standard $375 a month off Bitcoin?
5: And this is exactly <laughs> the issue, right? <laughs> because, 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 make...
4: because my salary comes in at the same number every month, but that's kind of a very different way of getting paid. There's, there's
3: one word in here... Estimate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is there a big asterisk by it with like uh, 50 lines of small print?
5: If you look at the columns, uh, it does have uh, estimated monthly averages in in the in the contract. And it has 375, 375, 375. And obviously that is based on some like accurate time of printing, which could have been like 400% out of date. Uh, like, it does seem like you're paying to plug in an ASIC. Like, oh, I'm paying to run this machine that actually gives me no benefit, but might mine a Bitcoin. Is it a good ASIC? Is it a bad ASIC? Is it actually going to mine many Bitcoins? Hmm. It's really skeptical I'm skeptical.
4: everybody is skeptical. So,
0: <laughs> so are we I think are we getting to a point here where Kodak is just a hollow brand that different people are licensing in order to play on some nineteen seventies, nineteen
5: eighties nostalgia? They want to make the puns. Where we're at?
4: They're doing it for the puns, for the Kodak moment puns. That's it that's literally <laughs> it as far as I can tell.
5: I, I do I do love Kodachrome, though, the nineteen seventies wasn't that bad. They also such a great film. <laughs> <laughs> So from one massive announcement to
0: another, I'm not even sure that was a massive announcement, but obviously this is the episode where I struggle for every link. Tencent gets a license to sell mutual funds to WeChat's 1 billion
1: users in China. I love this one. This is my Mr. Robot, it's happening moment, right? And this is the one that I've talked to people about and saying that it's going to come, it's going to happen. You'll be able to buy funds. You'll be able to invest through something like an e-commerce giant, right? And great. Tencent are doing it through WePay, I think, and... In the same way you could send money over Facebook Messenger, imagine that you can just buy shares of a mutual fund over the same type of infrastructure. Um, got all excited about this, sent this to a friend at a big asset manager who I've been talking to about it. and He kind of popped my balloon a bit. Um, he said, one, well, let's see how these funds really perform. Right? Which is a big question. What are these funds and, and, and how are they doing? And two, well, it's great that you can do that from a regulatory perspective in that part of the woods. Um, but can you actually do that on this side of the pond? Um, and there, there's a lot of questions around that. And, um, but. I think from a from a startup perspective, if you act like a regulatory uh, giant at the beginning, um, that becomes part of your DNA. And I think an Amazon, a Facebook, a Google will buy one of these rather than do it from a grassroots level.
4: Yeah, I mean it's it's worth pointing out that whenever these guys so ten cent and financial, Alibaba, Baidu, whatever the I can't remember the acronym for the Chinese tech giants, um, do something. It's it's backed by an existing financial organization. So these are funds that are are created by existing financial companies. They're already fund managers. So they are just sticking a brand on something. They're not creating a new financial product. I think it is, as you said, it's more about the distribution. Um, did you see this interesting thing about the credit card that comes alongside it? So the second product they've launched is... Um, I have no idea how this would work, but the tech giant launched the promotion of a new service that will allow users to pay their credit card bills via the money market funds available on WeChat's wealth management app. If, for instance, a user gets a credit card bill on December the 5th, due on December 20th for 5,000 if they automatically transfer their outstanding amount into one of the funds, they can enjoy the interest from the fund in that period between the 5th and 20th of December and have no need to worry about forgetting to pay the due. At which point my mind is like sorry, what? (laughs) So I'm investing I'm in
1: You're paying early.
4: Paying to paying early and getting money back.
1: And hoping vomit, that and the hoping fund doesn't go down, in which yeah, case suddenly the bill like, Yeah, well, they're, they're, they're money market funds. So they're, they're, oh, okay. they're, they're okay. stable. They're, they're okay. not going to do it. So it's like invoice discounting almost, but in reverse.
4: For a personal credit card.
1: Yeah. So, you know, great. Your, 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 your bill is due on the 20th, but on the 5th, you say, I'm going to take my 3,000 that I owe this month on the card. It will actually be invested. I may on in over the course of those 15 days, I may earn 30 quid on that mm. is right is that a
4: good idea for a country that has got a huge consumer credit problem
0: I don't know Ooh. but I, I,
4: good <laughs> question <laughs> it does,
1: doesn't sound like it does <laughs> <No>. it <Well. laughs>
4: It's an interesting product. It's I, an interesting I, idea. I think it's
1: experimental, right? And I don't think it's going to be cause a systemic risk at this stage. Well, you never know, right? I mean, but we we have spoken to
0: people about a similar uh, a similar approach, but something for longer term bills. You know, a bit like I guess the old fashioned Christmas club, where there was something that you wanted to put away for a long period of time in order that, well, not even you know months, in order that you could buy Johnny his, his bicycle at Christmas, and you'd be you know protected from uh, from spending that money early. But actually, that's quite an interesting revenue stream to invest somewhere, knowing that it's going to be stable and you're not going to take it in and out there. We've seen lots of one-year, two-year fixed savings bonds on the market, but we don't see any... Nine month and three days bonds or my car insurance is due next year. I know I have to save towards it. Actually, why isn't that money making money for me? So I think there is something interesting about that. The, the big bills that I know I'm going to have to pay. If I'm going to be able to put money aside in installments altogether, then how could that, that bring money back? Especially if you bypass the middle, middleman and are not paying, being paid 0.1% interest on it, but are actually getting like a, a stock market style return. Because even
1: with, you know, with some protection there, that's interesting. Yeah, I think who, who, who did it first? It was, uh, it was Baidu. It was their their lost treasure fund, they were calling it, right? And that it was the overnight balances were swept out to a money market fund. Now, there was big banks in China that were willing to take that money that was being made available to invest overnight for for repos and were paying a nice, chunky 4% interest on that. So I think this is their attempt to try to do the same thing, to channel a big amount of liquidity outside uh, other customers' pockets 15 days in advance and have these big relationships with the banks to be able to pay their customers back the big interest. Yeah, I mean, I think as a concept, this is, I love it
2: purely because this is what I'd love to see in like open banking utopia, where yeah. banks or providers, be they neobanks, can take a global look at your financial situation and deliver like timely, bespoke mm. recommendations on how to get more from your finances. Sarah, I think to your point, Um, they have to be bespoke. They have to be personalized to your financial situation um, rather than, like you said, just on a sort of one-size-fits-all model where actually you're doing more harm than good.
4: Yeah, I mean, for all of these things, it is always – I mean, I'm I'm always going to play the devil's advocate. I always do on these things. But you're absolutely right. You have to balance innovation with consumer safety and security. And my point being that in China, there hasn't been an awful lot of – Education or understanding about consumer credit. So, if you combine consumer credit with a product that you could lose the money that you were going to use to pay your credit card, my brain is like imploding. So, if we're talking about the regulatory aspect, yes, it's great that they have gotten a license to be able to distribute these funds and that more people are getting access to them. That is great, but at the same time, the question always is: Do the regulators have a duty to protect people as well as create a framework? And that that question is up for debate. Absolutely. But if you know if you're going to go one way. Do you then make sure that you've got the safeguards in place and I don't know whose job that would necessarily be but
0: I do think we're going to see more of these kinds of plays though where customers are our end customers are being more exposed to risk because especially in lower for longer interest rates of fixed payments uh, you you just can't get any money for for anything without without some kind of investment uh, and I find that interesting because uh, because people aren't educated on risk. You know, the general population just... Don't really get how that works, and
4: then do you end up with two classes? Do you end up with the class of the financially educated making even more money, and the financially illiterate losing even more money?
3: Yeah. You, you generally don't find it's the financially educated; it's the people with money who can pay somebody else to make the investments <laughs> yes. for exactly. them. Exactly, so yes. it's an accessibility point, yeah. isn't it? So these sort of like
2: through micro investments, the nutmegs, these kind of guys, um, it's a lot more accessible than it used to be now, and it's not just the preserve of people
3: who have money and can yeah. pay
2: people to do it. So,
3: but but even with a even with something like a nutmeg, really, you're you're moving through, you're doing self-assessment rather than somebody doing the assessment for you to a certain degree. And, and all the the differences, you know, Pete, you end up in a, a different bucket of risk, don't you? Rather than actually feeling like you've got a tailored
1: suit, actually what you've yeah. got is one of five suits off the rack. Exactly, exactly. So you say what what what's my risk profile and what would Nutmeg or Scalable or any of the other robo advisors say based upon their model, what is the allocation of funds you should invest? The interesting thing about what Tencent are doing with these funds is that in a European context, MiFID two would be all over that, right? And that but on the Asian side with the different type of regulation or changes that they're undergoing if you look at the demographics itself, um, generally people, not everybody, but you kind of say, well, I've got a chunk of money here. What did my parents do? What, how did they invest? And in Asia with a booming middle class kind of coming out of nowhere in the last 10, 15 years, um, you don't have a comparison point. And so people do have some spare change kicking around and they will actually be the early adopters of these kinds of things. I, going to keep my eye on this i really want to see how it plays out um, especially on the fund side sarah like you said absolutely finance institution behind this with some fund allocations um, but it's still going to be how are they doing this compared to how a scalable is doing it right moving
0: on to the next story TransferWise launches borderless accounts and debit card david
3: yeah interesting one it seems only sort of two seconds ago that they announced that they were going to be doing this it was probably about i don't know nine months ago now I know we were in an airport somewhere, Jason, talking about it, but um, but it um, yeah rolled it out to a thousand people. They're going to be pushing the the button to kind of take it out to to everybody later on this year. But it seems like quite an interesting thing that they're sort of going kind of head to head with Revolut really in this space in terms of what they're doing. For me, it makes total sense actually for TransferWise actually having somewhere where they can start paying. The funds to or from, which sort of makes sense in that context, doesn't it? But the, the interesting thing behind this really is that the, uh, the VC firm behind Revolut is also the VC firm behind TransferWise. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if this is somebody slightly hedging their bets a, a little bit in terms of what's going on here or, or what, but this is landed in Pulse as well, isn't it, Ross? So is, yeah, is it looking good or? It looks
2: awesome. I mean, I, I completely agree that it seemed like the next natural step. I mean, there's so much money flowing, um, already currency payments. And um, and you know to to actually launch a physical a physical debit card um, and let people make payments in a bricks and mortar store you know borderless um, as they travel I think is awesome. It,
3: it's interesting, isn't it? Because TransferWise has been the like yeah we've integrated TransferWise into our marketplace. You know it's been the first port of call for uh, people doing marketplaces for with I don't know Starling and everybody I think has kind of gone through it just because they've been so easy to to integrate. Now that Actually, you've got an account where you can go and do it from or pay the money to in the first place. It's actually more of a competitor sort of Western Union than it ever has been, really, isn't it? It's, um,
4: it's doing something that Western Union hasn't quite got its head around as well. Like it's it's this kind of I, you can set up X number of currencies and you can hold money in those currencies. Now, I know you can do that with Revolut as 28. well. Yeah, up to, I couldn't name 28 (laughs) currencies. My, my team the other day were like, which 28 have you got? And I was like, I've got, I've got three currencies, guys. Um, but being able, that's another, another use case there is for people like ourselves who are sitting in the UK and have pounds it might be quite nice to put some money in euros and hold it then you know you're going to spend It It feels like eventually. a fantasy
0: league uh, currency game where <laughs> yeah. we all start Watch off them. with 10 pounds at the start of the month we should do this we start off with 10 pounds and, so you've managed to move and the in money. 90 days who can get the most out of that Man. I can,
2: Jason I can actually see the light bulb above your yeah. head yeah. Yeah. and it's inspirational we should, open
0: it to, we should open it like we should open it out to everybody is well. yeah. like get a money thing. Thing. Yeah. we'll start a thread and uh, we're going to start.
4: Go. we're going to start FX hedging fantasy. basically
0: using transferwise. <laughs> okay league currencies. Probably
4: not quite where they thought where people were going to go with it, <laughs> but, you know. Um, I just go back to the point about Revolut. I, I think this is really interesting because, as you say, TransferWise have got arguably the steadier brand. I don't necessarily say the bigger brand, but they have got the steadier brand. And I know people who use TransferWise who are paid in pounds or sending money, as, you know, sorry, paid in euro and sending money to pounds and that kind of thing, who who like and know and trust transfer wise because of the brand it has they, and revolute to them is, is, is too shiny and new and fancy and it's all cryptocurrency. And no, I don't want, I don't want to go near that. So what's interesting to me is when you're saying about hedging their bets to me, whilst they are a competitor to us, those of us who understand them both and think we could do similar things with them. I actually think they're. Two different brands doing a similar thing targeting different demographics.
3: I, I actually wonder if they're a m- more of a, a competitor to, to something like Monese than they would be Revolut if a monastery. I wonder if the use case for this would actually be, um, you know, an immigrant pop- population who are sending money abroad, um, either in the UK yeah. or, or in other countries. So it's going to be really interesting to see who the thousand people are. If you're one of them, get in touch. We'd love to know what you're doing with it. But, but I guess yeah. it's another one of those, uh,
0: land and expand. Uh, plays because you've had Revolut go out with the card that you can spend money on. TransferWise with the remittances, Monzo with the everyday spend, and now hold on, Revolut's doing categorized spending, and now TransferWise is doing a card, and now you know you almost get to the point where pe- everyone seems to be aiming at roughly the same area, but just coming at it from a different
3: yeah. beachhead. Well, you,
0: There's you,
2: definite
3: you... There. Yeah. Yeah. you you've been saying for a while, it's like are these things features or are they? You know, businesses in themselves. And actually, I think probably what we're seeing is it's, it's, uh, very, very hard to make, um, you know, the significant amount of impact that they really want to in the, the, the niches around these things. So one of, one of the interesting sort of controversies off the, off the back of this one was, um, between the colors of cards. Like this is the, the level of, uh, of, uh, sort of issues that sort of kick off on this one. So we had, um, so they, they launched this, this card. It's a very pretty looking card, actually. It's, um, luminescent green, isn't it? Uh, with a nice little nick in the, in the thing. I thought that was quite a nice little feature. Um, but Penta, the, um, the business banking startup over in Berlin got a bit shouty about it, didn't they? So basically saying you've been copying our thing.
4: Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this earlier. That the, There is a obviously the brand element to this. So, you know, when you pull out that that hot coral card, everybody goes, oh, I, I've seen that. I know what that is. All people ask you. And I still get people ask me, oh, well, I've not seen one of these before, you know. But you know they're
2: not one? interested in the card. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we covered that story. We've done that. I, think I, think, that was, I yeah. think
4: I was on that, that podcast. Um, the, yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know. The, there is a use to having a bright pink card in my wallet because I can find it. All my others are black or blue and all my all my cards from major UK high street banks are blue except for one which is red. But the others, it, there, there is a use case to that. But if you end up having... All neon. All neon. <laughs> a, I'm going to get a headache very quickly. Um, and B, it kind of, it, it takes away from that, you know, the desire element, which is supposed to be easy to find and highly recognisable if they all sort of look the same.
3: Well, well, Charlie, didn't we put this to bed in the office earlier on? Didn't somebody somewhere else on the planet do this before both these guys?
5: Yeah, it's Abidescu's next bank. Were, uh, were lime green as well. I think that card design was out blah, two years ago. It was approved, and then it. The launched, problem is their uh, growth hacking
2: months. guys aren't as good as the growth hacks at Penta. <laughs> yeah, that that's that really is it. That's I mean, exactly. they hijacked it, and it was
5: it was awesome. And it was they great went. To watch. They went portrait as well, so they they went full well, on hotel card.
0: Well, they weren't the only people releasing new cards. Revolut this uh, week announced that they'll started to start to issue Visa cards. At the moment, Revolut customers can only use MasterCards. Visa cards will soon be available to Revolut app users. Like, is that still a thing? That MasterCards and Visas aren't accepted?
2: And that was the thing for me, was this didn't seem to be like part of a, a larger scale scheme migration. Like this is like, we will give you a MasterCard or a Visa or a MasterCard and a Visa.
4: Do you I need both? Do you? I do mean, you? Unless you're in... The only place I know... There are two countries in the world where Visa and MasterCard are problematic. One is Germany and one is Australia. Because they have their own kind of FPOS maestro system um, systems and you get charged them. But, like, having a two Visas and a MasterCard doesn't help there either. So Yeah.
3: I, like, Amex to either MasterCard or Visa makes sense, you know, like, in terms of acceptance. But I, I don't actually know enough about Revolut's back-end systems to say whether they're sitting on... Is it a full... Credit uh, full card they're sitting on, or is it? A- well, it's
0: still going to be a card processor that's, that that a card yeah. program through a particular. I know, player. but I think, I know, I think the, if, it, if it's big, down to the, the, an the operational
3: s- cost, that's the thing. Well,
0: yeah. I think the story here is about two mega brands fighting for for players. Ultimately, and I don't know if it's still the case, but look, a couple of years ago, Mastercard had something like a two percent market share in debit cards in the UK, so fought very hard for startups and for, and that's why you actually see a lot of the new fintechs on Mastercard. But almost all.
2: Hmm? Almost all.
0: Yeah. So I assume that Visa's now fighting back, and I'm sure must be making the deal pretty sweet in order to uh, to bring, well, bring yeah, some the, people the, the one
4: thing that, that's worth pointing out there, going back to the operational systems, is that Revolut, like a lot of the other um, fintechs, has a piggybacked off somebody else's you know, issuing and licensing, and that means that when the back end falls over, Revolut falls over and it's not their problem because it's not their system. Um, they were actually applying to... Mastercard to be, you know, a a direct issuer. So they were actually going through the process of being able to issue their own Mastercards. So this is interesting because I wonder what's happened there then if they are now wandering off down this Visa route. What happened to
1: that? Isn't there an element of both Mastercard and Visa are doing completely perhaps different things in the back end with their rails? To say, well, you know, uh, embracing a DLT blockchain, um, looking at faster payments. And perhaps there's something behind the scenes there that Revolut is working with them on, um, that could be more interesting for them, uh, maybe be- between then, the two different brands. Uh, I know
0: MasterCard has released some interesting APIs recently uh, for different things. And I think both of the large card schemes, uh, do, well, we've been to see their innovation labs, you know, they're, Looking to push hard because ultimately with open banking coming along and PSD2 and bank to bank transfers available to anyone, it's not long before Amazon says, don't pay us through MasterCard and Visa. Click this button. Allow us to trigger a direct payment from your bank account and interchange is
5: gone. So where
0: does Luckily, that leave the open
5: banking regulations have put that one to bed because it's a terrible user journey.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
4: but isn't, it's isn't possible. That isn't that part of that big play?
3: But but I, I guess if you look at the the people reason,
4: be the the, <laughs> the
3: the reason why most people are working with Mastercard now isn't because of a direct necessarily a relationship with Mastercard. It's actually like your Visa really wanted to kind of get into the game. They need to go and play nicely with Wirecard, and they need GPS to play, yeah. And, and, and these all those guys. people. Yeah. because actually um, the you know the fintechs using them are not because they've got some great affinity to Mastercard. It's because it's the cheapest, quickest thing to get something in people's hands, right? Um, but this this maybe is like you say. Visa are making it so sweet that
5: they've got to go do it. You know. Yeah, I mean, the fintechs are using a third-party company which has a good relationship with MasterCard already, and they were possibly ahead of the game um, when it came to connectivity to those payment processors the GPS's the PPS's of this world etc Visa have massively stepped up their game on their API portal I went to, I went to their innovation centre as well and it is a it's a different ball game now and they are pushing really hard on making sure that their API community is something that can actually build off the back of it so I wouldn't be surprised if that's this is part of that strategy of being like right we're going to get inside that fintech game and be right up against Mastercard well there's been some more
0: innovation in cards this week Sprint reveals the first self-charging digital 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 payment card. I I think this is the true innovation uh, this week.
4: Is it the first one? (laughs) Didn't plastic do this? They're brought out by Edge. Well, sorry that I was a load it, it, of names I just threw well, in. Well there there.
2: so you're right Edge and, and Edge is still doing it. They've they've okay. already um, they've already integrated it is battery powered it's got the digital interface But, and all but does that this sort of come around
0: that, like every 2 years or 3 yeah, of course years it does. or something where suddenly it's like someone decides they're going to make a card into a mobile phone proxy. Yes. It's like we've built a screen in it. We've built a wireless uh, antenna. We've built like Actually, I have one of those
1: in my pocket. I, I don't know <laughs> if you, got you know that. Has this
4: one in it as well? This this new yeah. one. It
5: does have an Yeah. yeah <laughs> everything.
1: I, I want Curve to do this. I love my Curve card, but I I always have to go to the app and switch between the two cards. And I'd love to be able to just do it. Hit my card. Boom! It switches between my Visa and Mastercard. Well, you can, can always do it after it. the fact. I know. I and I've done the Flex capacitor. I love that feature.
5: Put I, them out I, of business. I, but if I did, anyone else find it a bit weird when I saw a headline saying uh, a self charging card, and I was like, wait, when did I have to manually <laughs> charge <laughs> my <laughs> card? Like, what the hell? Happened? <laughs> Finally,
4: <laughs> what I've been looking for yeah. for all yeah. these years.
0: <laughs> A problem that really needs solving because my card runs out of battery all the No, hold on. Yeah. Wait,
4: what? <laughs> Did, isn't this the argument that people won't use, uh, you know, Android and Apple Pay because their phone will run out of battery so they use contactless cards instead? Have we just like to reverse the argument?
1: It's no longer waterproof anymore. It, uh,
3: yeah. it, it surely is causing loads of problems here because essentially the expiry, the CVV, everything on the, on this is interchangeable. It just, it looks like a terrible idea to me, you know. It's, but it's
4: really heavy as well. This is like, I'm going to put that in my back pocket and like, just go out. It sounds like... It.
0: And it's not neon. so. It's not yeah. neon. I think we leave that there. And we move on to a report from Fleischman Hillard. a Global FinTech Report. The fads, the fears, the future. That's just the description of FinTech for 2018, isn't it? <laughs> so Simon spoke to Claudia Bate from Fleischman Hillard, the author of the report. So let's hear from her.
6: Fantastic. So, I'm here with Claudia. Claudia, how are you?
7: I'm very well. Thank you, Simon.
6: Thank you for being on the show. you released a new report.
7: We have indeed. So, just this week, we've released a report around fintech in 2018. Um, it's all about the fads, the fears, and the future. So, we looked both at you know what was overhyped in 2017, but importantly, what the fintech ecosystem thinks is going to be really hot this year.
6: Interesting. So what was overhyped? Let's uh, let's see if there are any surprises on this list.
7: I would love to tell you something that you haven't heard before, um, but I don't think it will come as too much of a surprise that Bitcoin, ICOs and AI were three of the top fads that were identified by our participants um, for 2017.
6: And how are you defining fad? Fad being something that has little real world value. People are getting really excited about it, but it's not delivering. Is that is that a fair way to...
7: Not exactly. I mean, I think what we were looking at were the, the trends that have perhaps been overhyped from uh, so um, of hype a news that's gone perspective. Into exactly. So, you know, they're, they're valid trends, don't get me wrong. Um, but, you know, there are certain topics that have perhaps received more attention than was warranted. Um, and that's really what we looked at across traditional news channels, obviously social media, and just general hype in the industry.
6: So those were the fads. Uh, what about the things that we see as, as maybe a little bit different? What are, what are going to be the uh, things in the future?
7: The one topic that the majority of our respondents actually put at the top of their list um, was incoming regulation, in particular open banking.
6: 2018 um, is the year of regulation, it seems.
7: Exactly. Um, and with open banking coming in on, on Monday, there's, there's obviously a very... Uh, very timely topic. Uh,
6: and which it will be, this, this show drops on the Monday that uh, Open Banking has come in. And um, I'm, I'm praying for all of those people that have been up all weekend trying to do implementations at banks to get this stuff live. Uh, so uh, why do you think that was listed? Do you think it's, uh, oh, crap, we have to go live now and now we're going to take it seriously after the deadline? Or, or what's, what do you think the driver is behind that being now seen as important? Because surely it would have been important all last year with this deadline looming.
7: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's been top of mind for several of the uh, the companies that we asked for a while. Mm. Um, but obviously, with the the implementation coming down the pipe now um, and coming into effect, then, you know, people, businesses, brands are starting to ask, well, how is this really going to look in 2018? And what effect is it going to have on our business and, you know, other businesses across the financial services uh, community? Um, so, eighty-five percent of people said that open uh, regulation in general and open banking in particular would be the, you know, the game changer for financial services this year.
6: Wow, that's a that's a really significant uh, percentage. So, talk to me a little bit about uh, the methodology to get to these numbers. Uh, where was your? Where were the groups you you interviewed from? Were they um, mostly European? Were they global? What, what what's the input for this?
7: So it's quite a a wide range of stakeholders actually across, um, across the whole world. So, um, we spoke to, um, C level, you know, execs and founders from banks, from large technology brands and from fintech startups, um, from Europe, from the US, from Asia to really gauge their thoughts and get a really good sort of pulse check on what's happening in the industry. Um, we, collated both quantitative data, so asking them a series of questions and, you know, looking at what came out on top, which was was really interesting. You know, you had some some questions where there was quite a lot of divergence in views um, and others where there was a lot of agreement, um, like regulation and open banking.
6: So, can you give me examples of um, the ones where people were almost taking opposite approaches and there was an example of that divergence?
7: Yeah, definitely. So, what we thought was really interesting, um, both from the sort of the quantitative research we did and the qualitative research, was that certain topics um, divided the community quite well. Um, so, artificial intelligence, for example, obviously a massively hot topic in financial services. It was last year. It will continue to be this year. Several people identified that as a fad because of the fact it was overhyped last year. And, you know, everybody was talking about the fact that AI would truly transform the financial services industry. But there wasn't a huge amount of substance behind those views often. And we weren't really seeing real applications um, coming to the fore. But then others actually put that in in the future category. Um, And sometimes it was the same people were saying, yes, it was a fad last year to some extent, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to see further transformation.
6: So it's almost like they were saying it's too soon. For for AI and and I wonder if dealing with uh, legacy infrastructure has been uh, and then dealing with new regulations are the realities of banking, whereas AI is the dream. It's it's kind of we want all that stuff that Facebook and Google are doing, but actually we're just trying to keep up with regulation and uh, mainframes from from many years ago and a uh, seven thousand systems, four thousand systems that need to speak to each other.
7: Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's definitely the case, and you know it's it's. I think there is an element of people getting excited about possibilities and then not really being able to say exactly what those possibilities are or will be. Um, so that's interesting too. And yeah,
6: I reflect on this as like for a long time, I think banks have been sold too with like the silver bullet technology. It's like this technology will fix all your ills. You just need some AI and it will solve all your problems. Whereas actually, no, the, you probably need to get the basics right first, uh, walk before you run sort of thing. And, and, and actually there's a lot of, I think, engineers and very talented people in banks saying the, the same thing. So uh, what were your surprises uh, as you listened and kind of went through this research what what stood out to you as a shock almost were, were there any
7: um I think i was to be honest, I was quite surprised that you know open banking came out up top and that had such a huge proportion because as we said, the respondents were were global they weren't just from you know the u k or from Europe yeah. Um, So that was quite surprising to see the prevalence of that.
6: I find it interesting. It's almost like the world is watching Europe and the UK for the open banking trends and actually uh, how much can be delivered. Um, We spoke to Tom Blomfeld on the last interview episode of FinTech Insider and and his view was uh, nothing's going to happen with PSD2 until it does, or I'm paraphrasing, but basically um, almost nothing will happen in the short term and then suddenly there'll be this moment in which actually it becomes this really significant change and the timing isn't going to be the deadline which is uh, as you're listening to it the, this this past monday or, or this monday but it's actually going to be once these APIs have been around for a while once people have actually onboarded to them and are able to use them that's when the, and i wonder if that's what's coming out in the uh, in the interview
7: yeah perhaps I, I think that that might be the case i mean i, I I think one of the, there's a bit of discrepancy as well between what's happening and what's being said in the industry versus, you know, obviously consumer um take up and, and reception. Um I noticed a tweet from Jason uh, Bates actually this week sort of asking, you know, when will when will we see the effect of PSD2 and he asked his uh followers to sort of vote on on that and um some interesting comments around it, but it it feels like um, the majority of the industry is saying sort of towards the back end of this year, we'll start to see some real progress. But it does, of course, depend on some extent to when consumers will feel that they feel comfortable to um, to share that data.
6: Yeah, and of course, sharing data is only one small part of PSD2, where there are several consumer protections around strong authentication. There's a number of things around uh, the costs of interchange and the cost of payment fees and moving service um, fees around that are actually the kind of the bread and butter of any other regulation that we would expect to see. So um, there's, there's all of that sort of stuff that I see in the witch uh, type of consu- and, and money-saving experts type of um, arenas that may cross over into the consumer consciousness long before open banking and open data becomes a reality for for people so what would somebody who's picking up your report and reading it um take away from it what should what should we be looking for in 2018 and and what do you think um the key lessons were um coming out of this
7: the lessons are that you know we need to take certain trends with a pinch of salt (laughs) Um, you know it's easy to get excited about certain you know new technologies um but actually we need to ask a few more sort of challenging questions about what these technologies actually mean for the banks, for the the fintech startup themselves, for the ecosystem, for consumers, Um, and, you know, really sort of drill down to understand what difference they will really make in 2018. Um, I suspect that we could sit here this time next year and have a similar conversation. And we'll still be talking about, you know, how blockchain or distributed ledger technology will change the financial services industry. It's not going away. Um, However, we might be having a slightly different conversation about Bitcoin. I mean, you know, even since we collated the responses to the report and wrote it up and then published it, you know, I've got comments in there about the value of Bitcoin, which are now redundant because obviously the value has changed so much. Um, And it just goes to show, you know, the fintech industry is changing so rapidly. Um, You can make predictions, but none of us really know where we're going to be 12 months from now.
6: Oh, that's so true. Um, There's a great quote, people tend to overstate the pace of change and understate the impact. The impact of open banking appears to be the one thing that's coming out from your respondents is that nobody's saying that it's going to happen tomorrow, but everybody's saying when the impact comes, Oh my goodness! It will come, uh, and and that's a really significant thing, and, and probably the same for some of these other technologies. Maybe maybe it's not tomorrow, but it's 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 further down the line. So, Claudia, where can people find out more about the report? Where can they download it, and where can they get in touch with uh, your good self?
7: So, our report is is hosted on the Hillard website, um, or also on my Twitter and my LinkedIn. Uh, so, Twitter is simply Claudia Bate, uh, LinkedIn the same. Uh, just search for the name Claudia Bate. Um, And if you look for the hashtag FHFintech2018, you'll find all of the content related to the report.
6: FHFintech18. It sounds really good, Claudia. Thank you for being on Fintech Insider News. Thank you. And thanks to Claudia there.
0: Now let's hear from our sponsors.
3: This episode of FinTech Insider is sponsored by Huel, the nutritional powder food people. Jason and I absolutely love Huel, often when we're super busy or literally have no time to eat. We still want to be healthy, though, and Huel is really, really good for this. After the festive period of overindulgence aplenty, Huel gives me a quick, affordable alternative to grabbing yet another boring sandwich, or worse, skipping a meal entirely. It only takes about 30 seconds to make, just throw a few scoops of the Huel powder into water and you've got a tasty, nutritious meal on the go, which has all of the essential vitamins and minerals I need to keep my energy levels high and stay on top of my game. There are so many different flavors and combinations to try, including a brand new one that they've sent us this week, the world's first nutritionally complete granola. Huel are completely transparent about the nutritional information of their products, so if you want to learn more, check out their website. Even better, to get your New Year's resolution going with a bang, we've got an exclusive £10 discount code just for you, our Fintech Insider listeners. Head over to my.huel, that's H-U-E-L dot com forward slash fintech, enter your email and get a £10 discount code today. Huel have never done this one to anybody before, so get in there quick and get this before it's gone
6: fintech innovation is changing the way we bank and the speed we deploy new customer experiences is vital onboarding the right fintech partners can take months do you have time to lose introducing the innovation acceleration platform from temenos test fintech solutions at speed with real data straight from the core banking system with a yearly subscription you can begin testing the same day and create new customer experiences in no time for more details visit marketplace.temenos.com
0: thanks as always to our sponsors. Welcome back. As a reminder, Fintech Insider is brought to you by 11FS as if you needed reminding. Uh, Venture builders and challenger consultancies for the Digital Age, we help organisations understand the future to execute on it. We're building propositions for clients big and small. If you want to reach out to us, you can find us at 11FS.com and connect to us on Twitter at 11FS.team. The 11 Media team who produces this podcast also produced Connection Interrupted, a weekly show about how technology is changing lives and the unique personal journeys that tech has led to. And, of course, Blockchain Insider, the weekly rundown of all things happening in blockchain and DLT with news, views and world-class interviews. Both of those shows are available on iTunes now and we hope you subscribe and leave us a review. So, after that mini-ad break, on with the show. So, moving into the next segment... The Guardian's Take on Open Banking. Submitted again to Fintech Insider News by Emeca Nuanu. Uh, open banking, radical shape-up or threat to your private data? What do we think?
3: Um, I, like, this is the continual slot on open banking. At least one or two stories for probably the most of this year, I think, that's going to go on.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, Saturday's the the big the big day. The deadline. Oh, hang on, we'll go out on Monday, won't we? So we'll have passed Saturday, mm. so... We'll have seen whether the world's ended or the millennium Bug <laughs> struck or whatever else is supposed to have happened. Uh, the Guardian readers are so angry, I have to say. I actually sort of skimmed the article and then went to the comments. One, The first one says, this is literally diabolical stuff.
3: <laughs> oh, it's poor. the literally there that yeah. really gets you, it's isn't just it? diabolical. The, 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 the comments diabolical. are the best bit, aren't they? So don't worry about GCHQ. Thanks to the tax man, they already have full access to all of your accounts anyway.
4: <laughs> it just, I mean, it does raise a serious question, which is, do people know where their data is and what's being done with it? Which is a question that we've asked many times before and that's what open banking does bring up and there are there are serious questions about you know which we won't go into today but who who has your data do people know who has your data do people understand what they're giving permission for the scariest thing for me is these comments which suggest that people have absolutely no idea but, what's going on but i on. would
0: argue that they don't have to like if we run the yeah. same thing and go out and say can you explain to me ssl is, there, there are two H-T-T-P-S, sides to this, aren't there? TCPIP. And people use all of those things every day. It, ultimately, this is back-end infrastructure, and the success of it will be driven by the propositions that you you use. So while you might say, okay, well, I don't uh, know what that is, when things come out, wh- which is a, a new savings proposition that automatically takes money from your account, invests it, and brings it back in when you're you you're know when you're running out of money, people will go, oh, well, that sounds pretty good. And this is how you sign up and here's the bank and here's how you log in and you're like hmm okay it's, whenever you ask people about privacy everyone goes nuts until you ask them to fill in a form using Facebook login and everyone's like oh it'll save me five minutes I'm in
4: so the, the question so I, this is the way that we go back and forth on this all the time is it, if it's just a good user experience and a great proposition people will just click agree to terms and conditions and start using it and love it because, presumably because their mates told them to and, and it's a really good product whatever but should that be the case and the government has decided that shouldn't be the case, and that you should have to give explicit permission, which has created this debate. So they could have done it without that. They could have just said this is going to be a great, this is going to be back end change. It's going to be regulation that affects the way that banks build the infrastructure and the way that products are developed. But. There is, there's all no, this I, debate is coming from I don't them know. As well, I, I'd argue I think we've been
0: thing. this before, been through this before with Facebook because Facebook had the whole sort of click here, click hit there. Yeah. But actually they had, they were almost forced by public opinion to get to the point where you, you, the, the, uh, permissions page starts to get a lot clearer as to what you're agreeing to and how it works. And it's even more important with this. What I haven't seen or what I'm interested in seeing is, You know, everyone's signed up to things with Facebook. And when you go into Facebook and go, wow, there are like 18, 20, 50 things that I've given access to my data in various positions that I haven't used in three years, uh, that can't be the case with this. So for me, it's less the giving the permission, but actually the management of all of those things that I haven't seen the use cases of when I've signed up to nine services in, no, Do I want to still use those? How do I manage them? How do I know when they're asking for my you, you data mean and not? You if you're signing up
4: to, for example, through your bank account, you're signing up to TransferWise, Nutmeg, Funding Circle, whatever, Do how do you – you need a desktop manager that says you've yeah. given this permission to that person and, okay –
5: so the suggestion in open banking is that the, and they love a few acronyms, as a PSU, the ASPSP should give you access to be able to there deauthorize you your TPP. It's a pain in the ass. So Altogether now. Exactly. So I've been on the receiving end of trying to implement this on a te- technology basis, and it is a bit of a pain. The basic premise, and it is only a recommendation, is that you should be able to log onto your banking portal. Yes, let's hope that's an app nowadays. We're not in the 1990s. And from there, see all the various different things that are connected yeah. to your bank in the same way that you can go to Facebook yeah. and see what's connected to that. And then deauthorize or unauthorize it. So as a Guardian reader, I nearly choked on my quinoa when I realized that (laughs) this clearly shows that there is, like you said, there's an aspect of regulation which is being forced into the user experience. I now have to understand what I'm doing when I click OK. And that hasn't been advertised very well. Now, we move and walk around with a load of fintech people and banks, and I've known about this for ages. But the fact that it's hitting the pages now means the greatest Do you know how
4: many times I've inserted into articles or documents with a customer's permission, with a customer's position? I have edited for – I've been writing about this for seven, eight years since it was first. And it's always like, banks will be able to give access to customer data to third parties. And I'm like – with permission, yeah. with permission, uh, you know, literally yes. go, and it was but, actually adding it into yes. articles that have been published last week. But so. that's key,
2: isn't it? I mean, I think, so the intersection between um, PSD2 and GDPR is going to be really interesting. So, like, yeah. I have to understand, you know, what I'm doing, what I'm giving access to. Also, um, you know, I don't really see this sort of, I think you'll always get the early adopters who will um, kind of go through this process, give access to things, you know, willy-nilly um out of like just pure curiosity but I don't see this hitting mass market until you actually really up that value exchange so all right sure I'll give you access I'll I'll give you access to my entire global um financial position but what are you going to give me in return are you going to give me meaningful insights are you going to you know make recommendations that are actually going to help me get more
0: from my money
4: yeah um, it's it's good. It's going to be well, proven as well. Yeah. And that's, I think a lot of that's going to be word of mouth, actually. I but
0: really but think a bit like be... the, um, you know, financial services compensation scheme. I, th- I think this should almost be marketed as a, this is all right. Like we are putting in the controls and everything in place that mean that when you're asked this, it, we've got this. We're managing it. The, the end companies that have got permission to be on the registry, to be on this, we've checked. Uh, and I just amazing. don't think we've, we've had that sort of, this is a kite mark. This is open banking and it's safe. Which means that when that when those first login screens come up, you're going to be like, oh, I, is this dodgy? Is this okay? You is do
1: this- need that. You do need that. I was talking to a Swiss asset manager recently who sells into France and talking about that opportunity to leverage open banking, to start drawing in customers' current account information into their investing apps and doing an Acorns, Betterment, wealth front, so on and so forth. And her comment, she was quite skeptical. She said, well, with how private that French people generally are, that they're not going to be the early adopters of this stuff. So go back to the UK and sell it there, Pete. I said, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And it raises an important cultural point, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And it's going to be different from country to country around Europe. And that's one of the fascinating things around Europe is the cultural differences.
3: I, I definitely recommend going and looking at this article on The Guardian because actually um, there is one of the contributors to the comments who actually drops some ridiculous amounts of knowledge. So uh, man, this is a uh, very Greek sounding, so cogitanitesilis?
5: It looks about close to me. Yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> but, but, so, sorry, but this article is very poorly written and gives literally no insight into the driving of the change he goes on to give a completely concise answer of what it is with full references and then asks uh answers every question that people have put to him in the in it and it it, genuinely a very very great overview of dates and times and everything that changed and why it changed and the the driver for it um the conclusion that he was putting forward is this is a, a sort of another Um, media twist on actually the sort of European Union mandating a bunch of things that us poor Brits have now got to do, which probably relates to the next story. I kind of feel like if you're listening to this, you should definitely tweet David. (laughs) (laughs) I'm all for that. We'll
0: have him on. Brexit isn't all bad. UK fintech and VC remains solid, apparently.
3: Yeah, this, uh, like, this is a, um, the biggest sort of you were wrong, you fools. I've seen Chris Gledhill tweeting a, a bunch of stuff where he was like, you know, I told you Brexit would be good for fintech this week, which is, which is always quite entertaining. Um, you know, we're in the middle of the mire when it comes to Brexit and, um, all this is basically saying is that VCs haven't pulled out as quickly as we thought they'd pull out. And this is um, an article yeah. in courts. Exactly, yeah. And it, I, I kind of think it's an interesting one. So we've seen uh, 7.7 billion raised by UK companies in in uh, the last year, which apparently is double of what it was in 2016. We we can't really say whether it would have been triple without Brexit or quadruple well, without 2016 Brexit.
4: 2016 was a bad year as well for investment in fintech globally. Dip. Like it was it was a dip um, yeah. for for various reasons. That we've covered before. I were, uh, I think, as the article points out, the money isn't really the problem with Brexit, that the money was never really the investment was never really the biggest problem. The problem is going to be, how do we get people to work for these companies, how do we get people to implement yeah. these companies, how do we get people to help banks even understand, you know whatever it is, it's people to me uh, And, that's, and that's
0: the, be... in, the uncertainties, because yeah. no one really knows what this is going to mean, from a licensing perspective, from the ecosystem perspective it's yes. not whether it's a good thing or a bad thing
3: it's a we don't know.
4: Yeah. And uncertainty is expensive.
3: But, but <laughs> I, and I, I think that that point around brain drain, you know, I think that's, that's the critical thing, like that isn't immediate, like a good idea last year is still a good idea, this year, and probably will still get funding but can now they actually scale up a team to deliver all of those things to market what it is that the vcs have thought they'd do yeah you know?
1: yeah i mean and there, there's hundred and twenty thousand software engineers around london right i mean that's a big thing and the, the uk remains a massive market in europe in the world in order to self FinTech tech into and it's the nature of the individual players that really matters here because what are the ones that will depend on passporting around europe to really grow um some will some will not and that those that don't need it will still get the big investment from the VC the other interesting thing was that the european investment fund has already pulled out um i think they were responsible for maybe 25% to a third of the investment into fintech or into startups in the uk in the last couple of years um that gap is being filled uh by other providers uh by by other uh government sponsored investment funds or by pure vcs themselves so
0: moving on Wellfront's fundraise, an article in FinExtra submitted to FinTech Insider News by Pete T. Software only Wellfront raises $75 million.
1: Yeah, I really like this one and it's a good, it's a good dovetail for what we were just talking about is that. If you look at what the US called account aggregation, and they still do, um, back in 2000, I was using, I think, Quicken to screen scrape off of my bank account and pull in loyalty card schemes and frequent flyer miles, everything all into one view. Um, that's been happening for a long time. If you look at Wealthfront... You- Betterment started after the financial crisis. Um, I think Wealthfront has got up to nine billion uh, in assets under administ- uh, under management, which is fantastic in 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 eight years, uh, but not a huge amount. Um, they've moved forward to Series E funding. The next step after Series E is well, they're either going to be bought um, or they will go to IPO. I don't really see them going to IPO. Perhaps they will, but it's going to be which bank or which big fi- financial institution will step in, up and buy them.
4: So so this is, so I, I, I'm i really interested in Welfare, I speak to them quite a lot actually because they have all sorts of interesting things that they do. So a lot, a lot you know, absolutely, as you say, their, their main product is financial management. It started off with, um, you know, robo advising, automated investment, and now they do loans and all sorts of other things. Yep. Um, but they do all sorts of interesting little things on the side that if you play with their dashboard, sort of like, um, you know, tax management or specific saving funds for your kids, to go to college and what the audience they target is millennials and I would say they've done it a lot better than betterment have and the way they've done that is by keeping it cheap and the way you keep it cheap is you don't white label because that raises prices and you don't bring in advisors and do hybrid services because both of those raise prices. So if you keep it all automatic you can keep it cheap you can keep people happy and then the other thing you can do is you can become a technology provider if somebody does want to buy you i also really like the ideology that they're like we're not having people we're not we're just yes. not doing it we don't care what you're doing we're going to be entirely software driven
0: But there's also a question as to, just as you say, where are they focusing? Because actually a lot of people we talk to that are in the investment space or looking at robo advising say, well, actually that's fine for that lower, for the millennial lower end segment. But you go up a bit and people leave robo advisors. Or don't sign up to robo advisors above a certain amount of of money they have to invest. They actually need someone to speak to now and again and want to do some stuff. So I think there's an interesting question as to where the robo advisors are pitching themselves. And that you know I know Nutmeg brought in that advisor thing, uh, and I'm sure part of that was to move up the you know assets under investment chain and a few uh, a few clients towards the top end worth losing or, or. pricing themselves out of the very bottom of the range.
4: But Wealthfront and Betterment have very, very similar AUMs. They're very similar ages. I mean, Betterment, I think, has got 10.5. Uh, Wealthfront's got 9.5, which actually isn't that much when you look at it. So they are, I think it's almost a two-horse race there. And I'm really interested to see where they both go. And I would really like both to survive.
1: But. Yeah, Acorns would be the third one in there. And they launched in 2013, right? And But if you look at what an asset manager may do, raising $9 billion in assets or $10 billion in assets in, in nine years is pretty good. Right. And that's effectively what what I look at them. The the thing about Wealthfront is that just looking at their website, the two clear things stand out. Like you said, Sarah, they are targeted towards millennial. And you can see that in the field of, of the, the way things stand out. The 25 BIP fee, like you said. um, But also, any of the robo-advisors' websites that you go through, their branding will eventually mention something about human. Right? Jason, like you're saying, there is that element that people still want. The high net worth individuals um don't yet trust it. They want to talk to somebody. On Wealthfront, there's no mention of that. Nothing, zero, Zippo. And their Meet Our Team is all about the founders, their PhD backgrounds, their quant backgrounds, and that's they're computer it. Computer scientists. There you go. <laughs> are they so rocket are they-
4: scientists? <laughs> I can only
1: hope. I've actually got two questions for you then. So number
5: one is it It sounds like it's a lot harder to raise your company when you're talking about micro-investments, when you're talking about a wealth manager, rather than macro-investments, where it's big people investing lots of money. In which case, how does the growth strategy look going forwards? Once you've made your 9000000000 billion, you're still talking about micro-investments. And two, if they're looking at a buyout, it sounds like they're a technology edge company, in which case you're probably talking about a wealth manager who wants to modernize their tech as a likely buyer or?
1: Absolutely. I could see that happening. Um, just on the first question. I mean, you know, they're in the U S um, and I'm not sure, Sarah, if they've, they've gone beyond that. You're closer to them than I are, but they don't, the, they
4: don't want to go. Actually. You know,
1: do the coming to Europe has been prevented with their business model by the fact that PSD two um, is just now. Right. Um, Looking at the future for micro investing, I mean, it's a slow burn. Um, and doing that in one market, it will continue to be, you know, one billion a year, if that, um, getting attached to a big wealth manager by, uh, by a trade sale, that will accelerate it. Absolutely. Um, but still it is a, it, it's not an easy way to grow a business as folks well, I guess we've seen line. with scalable capital and their relationship with
0: BlackRock that almost third, third approach of actually if you're, lower in them in the pecking order and want to really accelerate uh, distribution and really get to end clients partnering with someone yeah. uh around that taking investment and not being wholly bought but actually having you know someone uh really big put money behind you is another way of, of moving absolutely
1: and they have an agreement with a bank in germany as well i think or, or, or in the netherlands that they're doing things with um and that yeah that is another way to do it is partner with a strategic venture with somebody else in the u.s or in another market that can help them from a regulatory perspective get in there can I pull us up on a
2: semantics point? We keep saying that this is aimed at millennials. <laughs> is millennial a segment? Oh, like, it's under it's like a 20-year age range. Like, where yeah. are they? Are they all at a party? So and the what, Facebook invite said BYOD. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> and it's under, basically, I can give you, I can give you how Wellfront define it. Um, I do yep. not, please don't tweet me about this definition. Uh, Wellfront say it's under 45. Because most people who have asset managers and have money to invest are over forty-five, generally speaking. So that takes you down to that micro um, micro investment. People that not that much to do, uh, not much to invest, but very tax happy. I, I,
0: I think it's uh, much better to define it as a psychographic profile that you yeah, know yeah, an, an attitude than an sure age.
4: It is. Yeah. The, the best one because to because
0: actually there are people who are living wholly digital lives. Who are much older and you know much younger? Are they on Netflix? They listen to Spotify. They take Uber. They're on Facebook, Twitter,
1: Snapchat, and You're everything only else.
4: You're as old as you feel, Jason. Yep. <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: I, I, I'm not a millennial, and I definitely would use Wealthfront just because the way that it stood out to me. I get it.
4: The one interesting point is that they they talk about scalable capital. They they do have they do these guys all have specific demographics. So scalable capital have a Very, very special uh, niche demographic, which does very well for them. But they are nearly all men. They are nearly all proper, like in banking or the the number of people, the number of scalable capital customers that are in finance or doctors or lawyers is crazy. And you can tell by the country they've just expanded into, which is Switzerland. So if Wealthfront's going somewhere, I would lay money on it not being Switzerland. But the point being that all of these services have the way that they've survived thus far is to target a specific demographic. And then they've got, certainly in certainly a Scalable Capital case, they've got people on board who support that demographic and want more of them. Well, well it's so, another
0: type of beachhead, isn't it? Yeah. On one hand, we were talking earlier about revolution and transfer-wise and Monzo and everything else. And that, this is just a different type of, of targeting. Target one specific area, then scale out and expand into
1: into others. Yeah, just what one thing on it as well. The Tiger Global Management relationship is important because that's obviously private equity. It's not venture capital. Um, they are at a stage where something will happen, and I I I'm looking forward to see what that is. Mm-hmm. So
0: moving on, uh, what bankers need to know about meltdown and Spectre chip flaws. Charlie, I'm I'm eyeing you out of the corner of the <laughs> corner of my eye. American banker. What do bankers need to know about Meltdown and Spectre? Do you want to just give us a kind of brief rundown, start
5: with? I'm so nerdy that as soon as as uh, as soon as this kind of news broke, I had, uh, had messages on Facebook groups from my friends going, wow, this is interesting, isn't it? What's going to happen there? <laughs> That's the kind of people I hang around it, I guess. Yeah, I'm talking about you, Alex. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So M- Meltdown is, uh, is a relatively easy bug to fix with a patch, so it's almost not worth talking about, kind of. Uh, most things have been, uh, have been patched. Since before it was announced,
4: should David and my mums be worried? Because that's where we want to go with this. So Spectre,
5: <laughs> Spectre is a lot harder. Like that is the it's really quite an elegant bug, as it were. It, mm, it,
3: wasn't that the last Bond film?
5: <laughs> that's exactly it. Yeah, it? yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. he, he's finally made it into the area of microcode. Yeah. Um, it, no, it's it's really interesting. So uh, Alex was describing it to me, and the best easiest way to describe it is that effectively your your processor at the lowest level um, makes some assumption that something's going to happen, and so it does a computation while it waits for the result of whether that true or false should come back true or false and ultimately you've tricked it into thinking it's likely to be true, it turns out to be false and it gives you access to memory that uh, belongs to somebody else now that memory can have things like passwords in it and usernames and that's incredibly dangerous really hard to fix. Microsoft released their update, bricked a load of AMD machines well done, then then. Um, well it stopped uh, it <laughs> <laughs> sorry, what
4: do you mean? You mean like if I have an old machine and I download that patch that's the end of my machine?
5: It's not an old machine these AMD machines weren't that old, it was an AMD specific chip that when they released uh, a patch yeah. that got around it, ultimately the only way to really fix it is to go right down to the microcode, like right down to the processor level code, which is why a lot of people are kind of scratching their heads, like, oh crap. So we're talking how about we a load of people who are
4: on 200 pound laptops. <clears throat> The laptop's no longer working. Uh, uh, everything. Everything. everything,
5: you know, everything. like okay. loads and loads of different every things. Ma- every machine, basically, wow. since okay. 2010 Service. or something. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> AWS is, is a bit of an interesting issue. Um, how do you really fix um, Spectre? Well, it's by going at the microcode level. And if you're not redeploying fundamental code in your chip, it's just going to make everything a lot slower. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see our AWS server slowing down soon. So is
0: this an ongoing issue?
5: Ongoing in the sense that, well.
0: No one's, uh, that it still needs to be fixed and that there are still, uh, flaws. There and, uh, are still and issues.
5: some issues out there. Now, it's been around for a while and no one's really exploited it. It's just been discovered that, oh, look at this. This is a bit peculiar. Um, so does that mean it's a massive issue? Now that it's in the public, does it mean it's going to be more exploited? It's a tricky one to exploit. It's very elegant, but tricky. Um, is it all fixed? No. It, so it is a bit of a, a hot topic right now. What's, a, what's so it? So it is
0: really like a spectre hanging around, yeah. like uh, floating in the the corner of the room.
5: Yeah, lots of lots of th- To be clear, like lots of things have been patched and fixed, and uh, it's no longer an issue. It's usually not at the fundamental level, but usually at a level just above it.
3: I, I guess the, the terrifying thing is the quote in here is that anything that can be patched should be patched. Some legacy systems are too old to be patched, and at that point, banks, shit. <laughs> <So> then, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs>
0: Well, I feel like we've got to move on to some good news. Uh, so, more than three hundred million pounds of forgotten money is about to be stripped from bank accounts and given to charities and people in debt instead. I guess it's good news for the charities. Less good news if that's your dormant account that's just about to disappear.
3: Yeah, this is a, an interesting one. So, uh, like they say, dormancy because I think the definition that they put in here is it's uh, it hasn't been touched over the last fifteen years, which is. Uh, you know, pretty pretty dormant. I can't remember the last time I logged into some of the things I did play with, so maybe I should go and uh, go and have a look. I'm check some of those pulse accounts, uh, Ross, just to make sure that we're not uh, not ch- tripping over that. But, Sounds so, like my
5: savings account, to be honest. Uh, exactly.
3: Yeah, well, it's definitely not gone up, has it? Um, but this was an issue. Like, I thought, the quote was bizarre because we've got Tracy Couch, the Minister of Sport and Civil Society, sort of chipping in on what banks should do with dormant money, which is quite weird. So this is part of the government's commitment to building a fairer. Society working in close partnership, and like, haven't they done that? Yeah, so,
4: but, so, so taking money off people who actually own the money, but just haven't used it recently, and giving it to somebody else. I know it's like some weird,
3: some weird Robin Hood. Like for me, this is like I, I, I was like I've seen a lot of polls on this one on hey, if on I'm Twitter. A that's
4: me saving for a house. Exactly. It's going to exactly. take fifteen years to get there. That's
3: true, but um, but yeah, I like I've seen a lot of polls on this one, and I actually voted for the banks should just get to keep this money. Quite frankly, like it's uh, you know it's like the you voted house for what? rules. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I like if somebody loses some money down the back of my couch, I keep the
2: money. This is like the breakage argument, isn't it? On like this prepaid is. cards and that sort of and stuff. Loyalty, uh,
3: sure. Points. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, but and it was factored in. Like this would have this this type of dormancy would have been factored into business cases for banks. So, like, I I think it's a, a, I think it's really bizarre that Tracy Couch, the Minister of Sport, I, is like. I, commenting I think it's incredibly
2: weird that the government are kind of like piggybacking on like taking money from other people,
4: yeah. passing
2: it on to charity and like trying to like up their own and also
4: giving it to people in debt what what does that mean <laughs> yeah. what, what does, does that mean do? is we paying <laughs> somebody's gambling debts yeah, like I mean I'm, I, I'm, that no, sounds no, very come callous I don't like, to be callous
0: I actually think this is a it's a good idea it's two million pounds that actually can't be spent is sitting there dormant that is not going anywhere and can actually be put to good use. No, you're right.
2: What's of course, course you that? are. And in that context, it's awesome. The problem is A, it's a one off and B, it does nothing for like financial inclusion or anything like that. It doesn't address any of the bigger social
4: issues. Actually, it's, sorry. The, the point is, it's not, it's not two million. There's two billion pounds worth of this money and they're only taking 330 million to do exactly what Ross has said to, to sort of, you know, to help people out. And that that's absolutely, you know, um, you know, giving it to charities and that makes perfect sense and uh, totally understand them. what are they doing with the rest of it? 330 million out of 2 billion it's quite a lot of money's left over the where's sen- that going?
3: Sending out in gold hey, there envelopes are, There are armies <laughs>
0: and schools and all kinds of things to pay you'd be, you'd be surprised 2 billion doesn't go far in today's, uh, today's society you know Everybody needed their cut
4: that's bonuses.
5: So rather than making it a one-off payment thing, and this is where it feels a bit weird because you're right, someone, it's the ownership of some asset, why should you be allowed to take it? Why not instead say, right, well, we're likely able to invest this for a long period of time. Let's say you haven't touched your account for 15 years. That means that if you want the money out, I'm afraid it's 12 months until we can d- dissolve it. At that point, we're going towards a kind of investment type spectrum, and you can start saying, well, why not dump 2 billion into some massive investment? You still own the money. It just takes a bit longer to get out. And then we use the interest for the good deeds. And uh, I'm, just, I'm just thing.
0: waiting for all those tube adverts and radio adverts a bit like PPI is like your money dormant if so call me and I'll only take 15 in fact that's the second business idea in this podcast <laughs> <laughs> call 11FS if you want us to check that your account's dormant we can stop that government stealing your cash
4: I mean the, the assumption presumably <laughs> that's what open banking's for <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my yeah. god <laughs> presumably they, presumably I'm I, I mean, maybe assuming wrong here that the, that the bank will write to the last known address they have for you and cheque that you, it's, gone. it's gone, pulled.
0: Sarah, unless you call Jason Bates, 11FS, <laughs> just saying. Right, last story. Fintech and fake cannabis drive record numbers of Swiss startups. You know that uh, that scalable capsule in Switzerland? Do they uh, have a good time there?
3: Well, I read this one. Well, I read the headline of this one, and then I was like <laughs> – is it implying somehow people are all stoned, therefore they're starting fintech startups? <laughs> um, but it does appear that actually over in Switzerland, that the uh, the, the sort of uh, the driver for all of these new uh, new businesses appears to be a a real uh, sort of penchant for for blockchain and cryptocurrencies to the point where you can actually pay your taxes in Bitcoin. You know, over quite there. often
0: I ask whether those crypto guys have been smoking something, and and like now I
3: can yeah. now I know. Well, and now they can and they do, and then they're built. More companies, it's it's quite an interesting one. But there's um, a place over in Switzerland called Zug.
4: It is. Yeah, yeah, Zug. yeah? I've yeah. been it's lovely. Crypto
3: Valley, really. It sounds like the villain in Superman, as far as I can <laughs> tell it in my head. But um, but a, a very interesting place that seems to be making itself for famous for fintech and low-grade cannabis.
0: So So we say we need to do a FinTech Insider uh, live Live. from Crypto
1: Valley. Sounds like a bloody good time. We'll invite Snoop Dogg along as well.
5: (laughs) How how much has banking changed? Once upon a time, it was cash and cocaine on the tables and now it's Bitcoin (laughs) and weed. I
3: (laughs) I I think we've chilled out over the
6: years.
0: (laughs) So if you want to find out more about that story, that's on expatica.com. And with that, I think we have to leave it. Thanks so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out more about you? Sarah?
4: You can find me on Twitter, unless you want to complain about my definition of millennials, in which case um, I'd rather not hear from you. I'm at Sarah Koshansky.
5: Great, Charlie. Straight up email. I'm afraid almost snail mail nowadays.
0: See, I love asking you that because every time it makes me smile that you're not on social media. If you'd like, if you'd <laughs> like to
5: give out your address. <laughs> sure. but Noah, it.
4: If it would text you.
5: That's exactly it. There's a PO
1: box somewhere. <laughs> Charles the <laughs> Wood at Capco.com is probably the easiest way. Great. Uh, Pete, you can get me on Twitter at Pete Townsend NV.
2: Excellent. And Ross. Um, you can get me on email. So Ross G or Ross G at 11fs.co.uk. Ross G. Yeah. Well, if you, you know, phonetic. I uh, tell um, my kids do the alphabet these days. Right? Yeah. Um, you can also, also get me saying. on uh, you can also get me on Twitter which is um Gallagher 7 because there was someone else in there ahead
5: of me as well. So <laughs> do we get to get you if we put a special sign on a lamppost somewhere? Well? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was thinking just, more of a, like a, a phone booth. There. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
4: Passing on the roof.
0: All of the above. Thanks for that. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Jason Bates or drop me a line at jason at 11fs.co.uk. Don't forget, 11FS, people who bring you this podcast are a challenger consultancy that creates and launches next generation finance propositions for our clients. Come talk to us at 11fs.team or drop us an email like Charlie at hello at 11fs.com if you want to, uh, to get in contact with us the old fashioned way. As always, if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a good review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. See you next week.